Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. Hey fam, what's up? Welcome to the no. show. <laughs> You're not even going to let me get through my whole thing. I'm sorry, continue. <laughs> Start over. It was like a, just an automatic response. It was almost like a fight or flight and I chose to fight. <laughs> yeah, you did. Came out that gate hot, ready to fight. I had a whole rhyme. I had a whole go, little, go, go. I'm sorry. A whole rhyme for you and now I feel Start like it's ruined. <laughs> no, no. I've, I've ruined nothing, uh, nothing that wasn't already ruined. Go ahead, Mandy. <laughs> okay. Hey, fam. What's up? Welcome to the show. This is the Moms and Murder podcast, bro. I really wish. No. <laughs> no. Is it still going? It just gets worse. Oh, so my God. <laughs> no, there really isn't any more. I wish I had the ability to come up with more rhymes, but... Unfortunately, all I'm really good at is writing about crimes. So God gave you, God gave you talents, and I gotta be honest, not not so much this one. Um, that was, I can't. I how do we move on? I feel like we both need to move on and to stay in your shame a little bit like, longer. I, I feel like I, you know, you just give me a little bit of sugar, and I start my brain starts operating a little differently. So. That's, yeah. that's where we're at this week. Hi, Melissa. <laughs> I can't even wait to edit this later. Um, hey, Mandy, how are you? Wonderful. How are you? Surprised, shocked, 
maybe terrified. (laughs) (laughs) I'm good, though. I'm good. We got to have a little uh, conversation before the show, which is always fun when we get to kind of catch up on stuff in just about our lives. Nothing that anybody wants to hear, but always good to catch up with you. Yes, always. It isn't just murder. Yeah, I know. Well, so much of what we talk about is true crime related. But yeah, it is always nice to just catch up as friends. Yeah, there you go. That's the word. Even though you pulled that stunt on me. (laughs) That was good. I liked it. I mean, like, I'm glad you did it. Way to go. Thank you so much. (laughs) We're almost in our fifth year. So this month actually is five years. Yeah. So you have to, I have, you know, I don't have a lot of tricks up my sleeve at this point is what I meant to say. So um, anytime I, I have at least one idea. Show your cards. I just have yeah, to use it, is, no matter how terrible. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure people don't think we rehearse anything, as you know, the fact of everything we do does not look like this is like a well-oiled machine. <laughs> but if you ever needed, <laughs> if you're ever wondering, I think that intro will let will key you in on it. There you go. Good job. <laughs> there you go. All right. So we are really just going to get straight into the episode this week. There is a lot of information to cover in this one, so I don't want to waste any time. Any more than I already did with that yeah, little, like, that little jingle I did in the beginning. So we're just going to get straight into it. Um, this week we're talking about the murder of a woman named Donna Winger. She was actually born Donna Brown. And if there was one thing that Donna Brown wanted more than anything in life, it was to be a mom. Growing up in a close-knit family with two sisters and a wonderful loving mom of her own made this desire to have a family even stronger. When she met Mark Winger in the late 1980s, it seemed like her dreams were finally on their way to becoming a reality. Mark was originally from Ohio, but ended up in Illinois after serving in Korea, and he continued being a part of the Army Ready Reserve, but he worked as a nuclear engineer for the state of Illinois. When he met Donna, she was working as an operating room technician for a plastic surgeon. Mark and Donna really were a perfect fit for each other. Donna was compassionate and effervescent. Lots of people described her this way. They said she was just very bubbly and cheerful. Her dad said that she was just as pretty on the inside as she was on the outside. And she was the kind of person who was a better friend to you than you could ever be to her. Isn't that an amazing description? Like, yeah. especially coming from her dad. That's so thoughtful yeah, and very probably sweet. says a lot where it came from her. Yeah. Donna's family thought that Mark really checked all the boxes. He was attractive, smart, fun, and he shared her Jewish faith. Donna felt like she finally found her person, the one that she was supposed to be with, and her family really agreed. They all loved him, and they loved how much he loved her. Donna and Mark were married on March 4th, 1989 in Florida. Shortly after the wedding, Mark was offered a new job in Springfield, Illinois, where the couple moved and settled in nicely, making friends and becoming an active part of the local Jewish community there. They lived in a quiet neighborhood full of modest homes. Life was perfect, and it was progressing just the way Donna had always dreamed her life would. All that was really missing was a baby. After trying to conceive and having no success, the wingers learned that Donna was unfortunately not able to get pregnant. This was devastating news for her. But in 1995, an unexpected encounter set Donna's journey to motherhood in motion. In May of that year, a doctor at the hospital Donna worked at told her there was a teenager who was pregnant and looking to place her baby for adoption. Although this was not the typical way that an adoption would take place, Donna said that she was actually interested in adopting the baby herself. The wingers started the paperwork and the process for the adoption, and on June 1st, they were officially in custody of a baby girl named Bailey Elizabeth. 
As soon as Donna held Bailey, she said she just knew that this had always been her baby. She was elated to finally have her dreams of becoming a mom come true. Mark was just as excited about being a new parent, and the family had all the ingredients for a long and happy life together. Family and friends said that Donna and Mark made just the most adorable and loving couple you really ever saw. They were very openly affectionate towards each other, and they were a great model couple to those around them. But this perfect dream of a life came to an end on August 29th, 1995. Earlier in the day, Donna took three-month-old Bailey to visit Mark at his office before going about her day and eventually taking the baby home. But at 4.27 p.m., Mark was calling 911 in a panic, stating that he had just shot a man in his home after finding him beating his wife Donna with a hammer. Officers arrived and found the front door wide open, and in the dining room, 31-year-old Donna was barely clinging to life while Mark held her and sobbed. Several feet away was the lifeless body of a man. He still had a pulse, but he was pronounced dead a short time later at the hospital. Donna was rushed to the hospital as well, and doctors performed life-saving treatment, but unfortunately, after 40 minutes, she was also pronounced dead. Mark was extremely emotional and upset, as you can imagine, and when detectives found him, he was in his bedroom, sitting at the foot of the bed, holding a wadded-up, bloody t-shirt. He had blood on his arms and neck, and he was completely distraught. He said he had no idea who the intruder was, and he kept asking if Donna was okay and if police knew the name of the man he killed. Officers had actually identified the man by looking in the wallet he had in his pocket, but they didn't want to tell Mark that, so they just tried to console him and calm him down. While inspecting the crime scene, detectives found blood everywhere, on the walls, the furniture, and the ceiling. It was clear that this attack on Donna was both brutal and violent. A call hammer was found near the intruder's body, and the 45 caliber pistol used to shoot the intruder was found on the dining room table. When Mark was calm enough to talk about what had happened that day, he tells the officers that he'd been downstairs using the treadmill when he hears a thump coming from above. So he goes upstairs to his bedroom where he sees the baby laying on the bed unattended. He hears more noises, so he grabs his gun from his bedside table and runs down the hall into the dining room. That's where he says he saw the intruder attacking Donna, beating her over the head with a hammer. Mark shot the intruder twice and then rushed to help his wife. But as time went on, Mark started adding details to his story. In his second interview, he added that the first time he shot the intruder, he was standing several feet down the hall. The bullet hit the intruder's head, causing him to fall to the floor where Mark shot him a second time. Mark said he also hit the intruder with the hammer because he was moaning and groaning. During this second interview, Mark specifically asked investigators whether or not the intruder's name was Roger. As we said before, the officers had identified the intruder through his wallet, but they didn't share his name with Mark. But when Mark specifically asked, they told him that yes, the intruder was named Roger. His name was Roger Harrington. Upon hearing this, Mark immediately told the police that Roger was someone who had been harassing the couple all week, which kind of strange that he wouldn't mention that from the start of this entire right. ordeal. Um, but he explained that Donna had taken a shuttle home from the St. Louis airport on August the 23rd. The shuttle driver was 27-year-old Roger Harrington. He worked for BART Transportation, which was a Missouri-based shuttle service. Donna had been visiting her family in Florida, and when she flew home, she needed a ride home from the airport back to her house. 
So allegedly, Roger acted in a way on this ride home that made Donna very uncomfortable. This was about a 30-minute drive, and he drove very quickly and erratically, going about 75 miles an hour, while just kind of randomly opening up to Donna about his personal life. He said a spirit named Dom had started talking to him recently and was telling him to do terrible things, such as to hurt people. And then Roger changed the subject and started actually flirting with Donna, saying that he liked older women and would love for her to come to one of his, quote, sex parties. So after, you know, this whole thing, Donna is, of course, terrified, and she told Mark about it as soon as she finally made it home safely. But then in the days that followed, Donna started getting strange phone calls, which she and Mark believed were coming from Roger. In response, Mark called the shuttle company and demanded to speak directly to the shuttle driver that drove his wife home that night. He obtained Roger's phone number and called him, telling him that if he didn't leave Donna alone, they were going to file a police report. Roger did end up being suspended from the shuttle company, and Mark instructed Donna to write down the story of what happened in case they needed it later. Mark told all this to the police during his second interview with them after Donna was murdered, and was kind of as though all of this information was just, you know, an afterthought to him. He never thought to bring this up right away, which... I understand in the heat of the moment of a tragedy, like maybe you don't, you're not thinking clearly, but you would think that if something like this happened, your first thought would be who could have done this? And then immediately you're thinking, hey, there's actually somebody that's been bothering us, you know, for the last week. Yeah. And he didn't mention that immediately to the police. So very interesting to me that he just didn't bring that up. He uh, also said that on the morning of the murder, he called Roger again and warned him to stay away from his family. And he told the police that he did end up filing a police report. Evidence was also being gathered back at the Winger home. Investigators found a note in Donna's handwriting on the fridge that detailed the car ride that Mark had told the officers about. On the dining room table, there's a soft drink and a pack of cigarettes belonging to Roger. Roger's car was also parked in front of the house against the flow of traffic. Inside was a piece of paper that had Mark's name and his home address on it, along with the time 4.30 written on it. They also found a crowbar and a knife inside his vehicle. The autopsy results seemed to confirm what Mark told the officers. Donna's death was, in fact, determined to be a result of several blunt force injuries to the head, consistent with a hammer. She had a total of seven deep wounds to the back of her head. The same medical examiner said that Roger died by gunshot wounds to the top, left side of his head, and a shot above his left eyebrow. He also had some contusions on his chest caused by the hammer blows. Police believe that this case was pretty obvious. They believed, based on Mark's story and the evidence that was collected, that Roger had become fixated and obsessed with Donna after giving her a ride home on August 23rd. They also think he began to stalk her and eventually kill her. Mark and Donna had a seemingly perfect marriage, and there was nothing to suggest that Mark would want to hurt her. One detective even wrote in his report that it was very apparent that Mark and Donna were very much in love. And Roger did seem to fit the bill when it came to being capable of such a crime. Although he did have a relatively normal upbringing with his siblings in Illinois, things started going downhill for him in his teenage years. He dropped out of high school and he enlisted in the army, but unfortunately he wasn't able to pass basic training and really the setbacks only continued from there. Roger ended up being arrested after a fight with his then wife. And although charges were later dropped, that's not exactly something you want on your record. 
Roger struggled with various mental health issues and was once hospitalized in a psychiatric ward where he received treatment at a local mental health facility twice. He suffered from depression, delusions, and possibly suicidal thoughts. But things were starting to look up for him in 1995 when he took this job with Bart and started shuttling people around. He loved the van that he was able to drive, and he was very, very proud of his new job. But Roger was also a near-perfect fit as a suspect in Donna's murder. The evidence fit this theory, and it really didn't seem that far-fetched. One of the detectives on the case had even been involved in Roger's previous arrest after the fight with his ex-wife that we just mentioned a minute ago. That same detective, Officer Cox, also happened to own the trailer park where Roger lived, and he said that Roger could have very well just snapped. Cox said that he always knew Roger was kind of a volatile person and really quick to anger. He thought it was entirely plausible that Roger had gone over to the Winger home to confront them over being suspended from his job, and when he saw a hammer laying on the table, he went into a rage and started hitting Donna with it. Then Mark came home and, quote, shot the bad guy. The day after Donna's murder, it was publicly announced by a county attorney that Mark was acting in self-defense when he shot Roger, and no charges were going to be filed. A few weeks later, a coroner's jury agreed with the theory that Roger entered the Winger home and attacked Donna, and then Mark killed Roger in self-defense. Donna's parents were really heartbroken for Mark. You know, they have lost their daughter, but at the same time, they also feel so bad for their son-in-law, who not only has lost his wife, but now also has to deal with, you know, this trauma of having to shoot a man in self-defense. Yeah. Many people believed in Mark and in his innocence and told stories of what a great family man he'd always been. And they believed his story that Roger, this deranged man, as they put it, had broken into their home and murdered his wife. But for Detective Doug Williamson, something still didn't seem quite right. Although Detective Cox was convinced that Mark's story was the real truth, Detective Williamson felt so strongly that Mark was actually guilty that he continued to investigate the murder anyway. Detective Williamson still had a lot of questions regarding Mark's version of events, but one of the questions on his mind was, how exactly did Roger get into the house? There was no forced entry, meaning somebody let him inside willingly, and Detective Williamson wondered why Donna, who allegedly was terrified of this man, would leave her infant unattended on a bed upstairs to open the door for somebody that she was in fear of. It just didn't really make a lot of sense to him. Yeah. And Williamson wasn't the only person who still needed convincing. Roger Harrison's mother also had a hard time believing Mark's story. She and her daughter, who was Roger's sister, described Roger as being a wonderful person. His sister said that the last time she saw Roger, he came over to pick up some baby clothes for a friend who really didn't have very much. His sister had some hand-me-downs to pass on, and Roger came over to pick them up. While he was there, he gave his sister $20 and said he'd see her later. According to his family, he was really just a thoughtful person. In the wake of the murder, Roger's mom had a rough time out in public because people harassed her and said mean things to her because her son had been labeled this psychotic killer. People in Donna's own family also had their suspicions. Donna's father didn't believe that Mark was telling the truth either. He said Mark really wasn't acting like a grief-stricken husband and that when Mark spoke about this whole incident, he was able to do so with a straight face while everyone else was pretty hysterical. His father-in-law said there were still so many questions unanswered, like why was the front door unlocked when Donna always kept the doors locked? And you'd think even now, especially if she's fearing this person, she's going to be even more on top of right. the doors being locked. 
So a few of Donna's friends felt something was off about Mark's story too. They actually even ran their own test where one of the women ran on the treadmill in the basement while another went upstairs and fell on the floor. And the woman on the treadmill said she didn't hear anything, that the treadmill was too loud. So they even started to question whether or not Mark's story could even be possible, which kudos to them. But nevertheless, police really didn't have anything to hold Mark on. So he continued to live his best life in the wake of Donna's tragic death. Mark filed for aid under the Crime Victims Compensation Act, and he received the maximum payout of $25,000 as well as $150,000 in life insurance. Six weeks after the murder, Mark sent a letter to a local newspaper thanking the entire community for welcoming him and Donna when they first arrived and for all the support that he'd received since he lost her. He said, quote, I often told Donna that if love was measured in compassion for others, she would be love. And if humanity was measured through good deeds, she would be humanity, end quote. And we still have so much more to get into this story. But first, we're going to take a break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. We know sleep is important. In fact, it's one of the most important factors in determining your overall happiness and health. So why wouldn't you choose proven quality sleep from Sleep Number? Because things like picnics, water skiing, baseball games, and just surviving the heat this summer are even better with a great night's sleep. We are both big advocates for our sleep number bed. In fact, when people find out I have a sleep number bed, they have lots of questions, mainly being what makes it different from other beds? And the fact is, it's because it's the perfect bed for me. For starters, I can adjust the sleep number so it's a customized sleep every time. When I'm sleeping on my sleep number setting at a 30, my sleep IQ is between an 85 and 90, which is really incredible as someone who's always struggled to get a good night's sleep. Having a good night's sleep means I'm less burnout, less of a grump, and even have less cravings. And I've discovered that my perfect sleep number setting is a 30, but occasionally I even go down to a 25 for an even softer, fluffier experience. I always wake up feeling like I got the best night of sleep, and my sleep IQ score of 87 confirms that I am sleeping better than ever. Why choose proven quality sleep from Sleep Number? Because every great day starts the night before. Discover special offers now for a limited time at your local Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com slash moms. We all love a good mystery, especially one we can solve. And if you're looking for another way to tickle that itch, look no further than June's Journey. June's Journey is a free-to-download game following June Parker, amateur detective investigating a series of mysteries with twists and turns around every corner. As moms, we are the queens of solving mysteries around our house. Like, how many times will I wash this same load of clothes before I remember to put it in the dryer? And while I'll probably never solve that mystery, I can enjoy mysteries with June's journey. While enjoying the glamour of the roaring 20s, I can put on my Sherlock hat and help solve mysteries as June Parker, a woman whose life is much more chic than mine. I really enjoy playing June's journey while vegging out at home at night or just as a pick-me-up in the morning while I'm waiting for the caffeine to hit. I'm in chapter three, and what's great is that there are new chapters added every week, so you always have something new and exciting to look forward to. You guys will love the beautiful and immersive scenes filled with drama, danger, and maybe even a little romance. Find your inner detective. Download June's Journey today, available on Android and iOS mobile devices, as well as on PC through Facebook games. Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? 
Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about the murder of Donna Winger and also the death of Roger Harrington. After Donna was killed, her family took turns traveling up from Florida to help take care of Bailey, who, as we said, was uh, their baby girl. But after a while, that became really overwhelming. So Donna's family suggested that Mark hire a nanny to help take care of her. He ended up hiring a young woman named Rebecca, who was just as sweet as could be and wanted nothing more than to help the family following this really tragic loss. Donna's sister was at first resistant to the idea of having another woman raising Bailey. But once she saw how Rebecca was with the little girl, she really started to like her and had nothing bad to say about her. Rebecca felt really bad for Bailey, who had lost her birth mom and now her adoptive mom in the first three months of her life, but she was still so smiley and happy, and Rebecca instantly bonded with the baby. A few months after the murders, Mark felt that it had been long enough for him to request to have his gun returned to him, so he went down to the police station and spoke with Detective Cox, who, if you remember, was the one who was convinced that Mark was innocent and that his story was true and accurate. Detective Cox had no reason not to return Mark's gun to him, so he released it back to him and they talked for about 30 minutes that day. The conversation ended up striking Detective Cox as being a little bit weird, though, because Mark started asking a lot of questions about how the case was going. This was weird to Detective Cox because as far as he was concerned, Mark should have considered and accepted that this case had been closed because no one ever told him that they didn't believe his story. So why would he think the police were still working on the case this many months later? Because of the strange questions and comments that Mark had, Detective Cox, who was never suspicious of him before, suddenly felt like maybe his partner, Detective Williamson, had been right all along, or at least maybe he was on to something about Mark. 
But it wasn't until late December of 1995 that Mark firmly planted himself as a suspect in his wife's murder. On December 29th, he filed a lawsuit against the shuttle company, alleging that they were negligent in hiring Roger to begin with. He said that they should have known about his background and known that he was a potentially dangerous person, you know, unfit to transport people around in a car. The lawsuit ended up being a terrible move for Mark, but it led to a huge break in the case for the police. The lawsuit against Bart spurred an investigation by their company attorneys, which kept rumors about the murder of Donna Winger alive and well. The Bart attorneys found new evidence, and within a year, they were working with police, unbeknownst to Mark, who was out happily raising Bailey with his young nanny, Rebecca. Detectives showed the attorneys crime scene photos, and they allowed them to have custody of several pieces of evidence, including the hammer. The items sat in the Bart attorney's office for over four years while the investigation continued. In the meantime, Mark and Rebecca began having a romantic relationship, to the surprise of really no one. Rebecca later said, quote, when you live with someone and you're taking care of a child together, it's very easy to kind of play house. You're already put in those roles, end quote. She said Mark made her feel like he and Bailey really needed her and that her purpose was to make this family whole again. She fully believed in Mark's story that he had tried to save his wife the night she was murdered. Rebecca did have questions early on, like how it was so easy for Mark to move on so quickly, and he told her that when you have a good marriage like he and Donna did, it's really just natural to want that again. A big shock for Rebecca came when she learned she was pregnant with Mark's baby just a few months after she moved in with him. Mark had always said that he wasn't able to have kids, so Rebecca was very, very surprised when she got pregnant, but Mark was absolutely thrilled. He asked Rebecca to marry him and borderline pressured her into saying yes. He wanted to get married and have more children with Rebecca so that he could build this family that he had always dreamed of. This actually made Donna's family even more suspicious that Mark may have had a bigger motive to kill her. He wanted a family and Donna was unable to conceive kids on her own. Since Rebecca was a Christian, Mark decided to leave Judaism behind and began attending church with Rebecca with the promise that the children that they had could be raised in a Christian household. When Mark's rabbi asked him why he was leaving the faith, Mark said that Judaism was, quote, too difficult and unforgiving, end quote. But he didn't say exactly what he needed forgiveness for. In January of 1996, the month after the Bart lawsuit was filed, Mark went to the police station and told officers that he was marrying Rebecca. And he once again asked about the status of Donna's case, which also seems like kind of a bizarre thing to walk in there to announce to them. They do not. Um, well, actually, they do quite a bit. Right. Now, <laughs> now they do, yeah. <laughs> At that point, Detective Cox felt like Mark was acting suspicious due to the fact that he kept finding these reasons to come in and to inquire about whether or not the police were still investigating anything. So he told Detective Williamson that he now believed there was something fishy going on and the two of them go to their superiors to see about reopening the case. Unfortunately, they were told no for the next three years. Wow. Yeah. So over the course of these three years, Mark and Rebecca had a total of three children together, and Rebecca legally adopted Bailey. After nearly a year and a half had passed, Mark sold the house that he and Donna shared, the same house that she was killed in. He told Donna's family he was relocating to just outside of Springfield, and he firmly told her mom, Sarah, that he was no longer going to allow Bailey to call her grandma, and he was severing ties with Donna's family, which, oh my gosh, 
Sarah Makes was me so, so devastating. Yes, and this was so devastating for them, of course. This was the baby that made her a grandma for the first time, and she, you know, was devastated. She mourned the loss of this granddaughter in her life. And that's her connection to her daughter, exactly. too. Exactly, yeah. To have this, like, yeah, that's oh, so wrong. But still, every year, um, Sarah and her husband, Ira, would send Bailey a card on her birthday. As she got older, Bailey would start asking her mom, Rebecca, who Sarah and Ira were. And Rebecca would explain to them that they were Donna's parents who just wanted her to know that they remembered her and loved her, which at least Rebecca was like, I know, you know, forthcoming about who they were. And it was honest with her and upfront about who they were. Yeah. Mark and Rebecca ended up moving into a large farmhouse on 4.4 acres. They remodeled and added some upgrades, such as a whirlpool and a home gym. Mark eventually ceased all contact with friends that he knew when he was married to Donna, and he created an entirely new life in Springfield. He was also promoted to head the section of his company that supervises Illinois nuclear power plants. And time marched on for a few years, until a woman from Mark's past popped back up in March of 1999. So just to recap, Donna was murdered in 1995. By 96, Mark was married to Rebecca, and over the next three years, they had three kids together of their own. Now we're up to March of 1999, and things were about to get very, very messy. So that March, police were randomly contacted by a woman named Deanne Schultz. Deanne said that she had worked with Donna and was one of her closest friends. But in July of 1995, she did something she wasn't proud of. She began having an affair with Donna's husband, Mark. She said that in about early August of 1995, Mark and Deanne were talking on the driveway and Mark commented that it would just be so much easier for them if Donna, quote unquote, just died. He also said that he thought about this for a while and all he'd have to do is just, quote, come in and find the body, end quote. So Deanne dismisses the whole idea as being, you know, just something he was saying and didn't agree to participate of in anything of the sort. This is her friend. And on a later date, though, Mark tells Deanne that he didn't want his daughter to grow up in hot, humid Florida with Donna's family. So once again, he said it would just be easier if Donna died naturally. I guess he's saying that instead of getting a divorce. Deanne, who's also married at this time, tells Mark that her plan was to ask her husband for a divorce. And she said if Mark wanted to be with her, he would have to do the same with Donna. According to Deanne, Mark tells her all about this plan to have Roger Harrington lured to the house in order to set him up in this evil double murder scheme. The next day, Mark calls Deanne at work and asks if she'd still love him no matter what. The two of them then stayed at their rabbi's place that night, and we can assume that the rabbis obviously had no clue that there's this affair going on. When they wake up on the morning of August 30th, Mark tells Deanne that she better stay as far away from the police as possible and not to tell them anything about this affair because it would look very bad. He said, quote, I think the police believe me. I did it for us, end quote. Deanne said he was definitely more concerned with what the police thought than he was about Donna's death. Deanne and Mark continued dating for a little while, and at one point, they even exchanged wedding bands. And so think about this. During this time, he's dating Rebecca a few months after Donna's murder, and he has exchanged wedding bands with Deanna sometime in the weeks after the murder. This is just a lot going on. Um, and it's shocking. I think today he would have been caught in this affair, but back then, I'm yeah, I always forget our cell phone times. But right. I, yeah, if you did, there nobody's checking records. Even if you did, you probably couldn't even 
if we had cell phones then. I don't remember the timeline. <laughs> we we need some sort of like a master list of whenever technology came out um, for these episodes. Eventually, Deanne started thinking that Mark had something to do with Donna's murder, which, no kidding. In the time after her death, Mark had said a number of weird things. When he was referencing Roger Harrington, Mark said, quote, dead men don't talk. And another time, he said that the murder, quote, didn't happen the way the paper said, but that ignorance was bliss and he didn't want Deanne to know more. And in another example, Mark seemed concerned about the note that was found in Roger's car that had his name and address on it. And he said that it was because he was actually worried the police had bugged his car. I don't know what that would be all about either. That was kind of confusing to me. Like, why would that be a concern of his or what? I didn't know where he was going with that, but he was he was worried about that. You're probably getting paranoid about at some everything point, right. about all of this. Yeah. Mark and Deanne ended up ending their relationship in March of 1996, and by that time, he was already romantically involved with Rebecca. After the breakup, Deanne said that her mental health spiraled. She felt like she was the keeper of some deep secret and it ate her up inside to the point that she even contemplated taking her own life. She went to counseling and started taking medication as well as getting electroconvulsive therapy treatment. In early 1998, she began seeing a new psychiatrist who she told all about her various problems, the severe migraines she was having, the depression, the suicidal thoughts, and he asked her if she had any idea where these things began. So she mentioned Mark, the affair, the murders, all of it. Dr. Lauer told Deanne that she needed to free herself from the guilt of all of this, and if she didn't, she would always be plagued with it and would never be able to fully move on or to heal from it. So he told her his best advice was that she needed to go to the police. In October of 1998, Deanne decided to reach out to Mark in hopes of getting a confirmation one way or the other. She called him and asked him how he lived with himself, and Mark replied that he had found Jesus and he was forgiven. Donna told Mark that she informed her psychiatrist about everything, which, of course, really upset Mark because now he's worried that the psychiatrist is going to go to the police. Right. So he told Deanne that if she tells anyone about the murders, that their gooses will be cooked. Several months later, in March of 1999, Deanne went to the police and gave a full statement. She received immunity in exchange for her testimony against Mark. And after receiving Deanne's statement, Donna's case was officially reopened. After waiting to get all the files and evidence back from the Bird attorneys, who, again, had this evidence all sitting in their office this entire time, investigators were able to go through it all again, and they found something new. There were three Polaroid photos taken by an officer before the paramedics arrived to work on Donna and Roger. One look at these photos confirmed that Mark really lied about what happened. The position of the bodies in these photos didn't reflect what Mark told the police at all. Roger's head and feet were actually on the opposite ends of what they would have been had Mark's story been true. Mark claimed that Roger was kneeling down next to Donna's head while beating her with a hammer and that he shot Roger, causing him to fall backwards so that his feet were still near Donna's head. In reality, the Polaroid photos showed something completely different. It was actually the exact opposite scenario, meaning there's no way Mark could be telling the truth. Detectives Cox and Williamson had never gotten the chance to look at these photos before because the case was closed so quickly and the pictures were unfortunately overlooked. Although it was hard to do, the two detectives had to admit that they botched this original investigation with this oversight. They started to reinvestigate the case in hopes that they could make right on their mistakes. Detective Cox felt 
absolutely awful about the anguish he had caused Roger Harrington's family by letting them bury him as a murderer and praising Mark as being some kind of a hero publicly. He knew he had hurt the Harrington family, and he felt deeply sorry for that. Many of Roger's family and friends were frustrated with the police because they had all tried to tell them that Roger was this kind and gentle man, but no one would believe them. Roger had never been violent, and he was trying to turn his life around after having a rough patch. His mom always said he was no troublemaker. She said he wouldn't hurt anyone, and she didn't think he was quote-unquote crazy. Investigators agreed that Roger was the perfect person for Mark to set up for murder, and that they had missed all the signs of it at the time. And we still have more to get into after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions, even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. I've always had a weird relationship with food. I feel like if you were a kid of the 80s or 90s, you probably watched your mom try a million diets instead of ever really developing a healthy relationship with food. And thanks in part to that, I've spent years of making unhealthy habits, like looking at pizza like it's bad and broccoli like it's good. Thanks to Noom, I've learned that food is just that. It's food. There's no need to label it because Noom doesn't believe in restricting what you can have or what you can't. In actuality, Noom is designed to give you the knowledge to help you make informed choices that not only fit your lifestyle, but also help you to reach your goals. Unlike other programs, with Noom, you are the boss and you decide how it fits into your life, not the other way around. Whether you want to spend 5, 10, or 15 minutes a day, how much you spend on the app is totally up to you. And Noom is all about results. In fact, more than 75% of their users will complete the program. For me, using Noom was all about feeling better and eating better. Since using Noom, the thing I love the most is not having this feeling of failure if I veer off track. Noom is all about progress, not perfection, which is something I've always been missing. And it's made a really huge difference. Eating better helps with my mood and my stress level, and Noom helps me achieve that. My favorite part of the app is really the flexibility. I'm able to do as much or as little as I want without feeling like I'm failing myself. Sign up for your trial and get psychology-based support and motivation to reach your goals at noom.com slash moms. That's noom.com slash moms to sign up for your trial. It's been a while since I've had a baby of my own, and some days I miss it so much. The baby cuddles and baby smiles, but when it comes to diaper rashes... Not so much. I remember the first time my oldest had a diaper rash, I was really devastated. Here's this tiny thing totally dependent on me, and now she's fussy and obviously uncomfortable, and I'm supposed to have the answers. Well, with time and treatment, it went away, but what I really wanted was to avoid it altogether. And now, baby butts rejoice. New Huggies Skin Essentials are here, a brand new dermatologist-approved line of diapers, wipes, and pull-ups training pants, all designed with baby's sensitive skin in mind. The wipes are thick and have zero harsh ingredients for a great, gentle clean. Pull-Up Skin Essentials has got your big kid covered, too, with a training pant that's ultra-soft and breathable to help protect sensitive skin throughout potty training. Whether you're a first-time parent or a seasoned pro, make it easy on yourself and your baby with Huggies. Learn more at Huggies.com. Once again, head to Huggies.com to learn more. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we had mentioned how these detectives that were working on Donna Winger's murder have now 
come to the conclusion that Mark Winger has not been telling the truth this entire time. So they have finally reopened this investigation after three years of trying to um, get the investigation reopened. And now they are finally back to interviewing witnesses and looking over the evidence once again. So other witnesses that police spoke to during the reinvestigation confirmed that there were even more sketchy details that hadn't been considered when the murder first occurred. One of Mark's co-workers named Candace told them that on August 25th, four days before the murders, Mark asked her what would happen to his daughter if his wife died since the adoption wasn't yet complete. He seemed really worried about what could happen to baby Bailey. Later that day, Mark called the shuttle company and complained about Donna's ride home from the airport. The day after that, August 26th, Mark called back again and requested the driver's full name, and then two days later, he called the manager again to see if he was able to talk to Roger about this issue. At that time, the manager said Roger had been cooperative and agreed to talk to Mark and sort things out. Roger's roommate, Susan, told officers that on the morning of the murders, she overheard Roger on the phone talking about meeting somebody, and she watched him write the information down on a piece of paper. Susan said he left around 3.30 and said that he had to go take care of something. So when officers found the paper with Mark's name and address on it with the time 4.30 written down, they first assumed it was because, you know, Roger's going to go there to murder Donna, so that's why he has the address written on paper. But now there was this other explanation for it, you know, that Roger was actually going there believing that he was meeting Mark just to have a talk. The detectives figured that Mark probably didn't consider that Roger would write that information down on paper and bring it with him in his truck. Roger's other roommate, Trisha, said that Mark called Roger that morning and invited him over to his house. Trisha said that Mark was eager to resolve the whole situation so he would be able to keep his job and get back to work. And he wanted to go straight to Mark's house and just get all of this over with. They also discovered that Mark had made a claim for Donna's life insurance less than 24 hours after her death. Based on numerous accounts, it's believed that Roger arrived at the Winger home at about 3.50 p.m. It was 37 minutes later, at 4.27 p.m., that Mark dialed 911. So the detectives knew at this point that there were a lot of problems with Mark's original story that he'd been sticking to. It was really unlikely that Donna would have let Roger inside their home while Mark was down in the basement. She was allegedly terrified of Roger, so why in the world would she open the door for him? Investigators also found Roger's drink and cigarettes on the dining room table, which seems like he entered the home casually and was just preparing to sit down to have a conversation. Obviously, if you're going to somebody's house to murder them, you're not going to bring around your Diet Coke. Roger showed up to the Winger house in broad daylight, parks his car against the flow of traffic, and they thought that would be a weird thing to do if you're trying to be inconspicuous about committing a murder. They wondered if Roger was really there to attack anyone. Why would he leave the crowbar and the knife in his car and go inside empty-handed? Further evidence pointing to Mark's guilt was the number of inconsistent accounts he gave of the events of that afternoon, as well as his actions after the murder, including telling Deanne to keep information from the police. It was now believed that Mark had murdered Donna and Roger, and then set it up to look like it was Roger who killed Donna, and like he had no choice but to kill Roger. Furthermore, they believe that Mark started planning the whole thing right after Donna's ride home from the airport with Roger. The detectives decided to bring on Tom Bevel, who is a president of the blood evidence consulting company called TBI, to look over the blood evidence and confirm this new theory. Tom determined that Mark shot Roger in the upper back of the head and then beat Donna to death with a hammer. After some time had passed, Mark rolled Roger over and shot him a second time in the forehead. 
There was no blood belonging to Donna found on Roger, and the gunshot wounds were not consistent with Mark's story. So the final theory that the police settled on was that Mark began planning Donna's murder sometime before her shuttle ride home with Roger. And then when she had that weird experience in the car on the way home, Mark realized that this was his golden opportunity to frame the shuttle driver for Donna's murder and to make it look like he was also a victim who had to act in self-defense. This theory explains why baby Bailey was left unattended on the bed upstairs. When Roger arrived at the house, Donna was upstairs with the baby. Mark let him inside and shot him downstairs shortly thereafter. And upon hearing the gunshot, it is thought that Donna rushed downstairs to investigate what was going on, only to be met by her husband swinging a hammer at her. In December of 1999, in light of these new findings, the attorneys for the shuttle company, Bart, also accused Mark of killing Donna and Roger. Once this information was made public, Roger's parents immediately filed a wrongful death suit against him as well. Everything kind of came to a head at one time, leaving Rebecca completely speechless and utterly shocked by this turn of events. She later told 2020 that it went from, you know, her husband Mark being a hero who defended his wife to now him being this manipulative, deviant murderer. Wow. Two months later, Mark dropped the suit that he filed against Bart, and his family hired a well-known attorney that was able to stop further proceedings in the civil suit until the criminal investigation was completed. But still, it wouldn't be for another 18 months before Mark was formally charged. Donna's family was gut-wrenched during this time. Her dad got so upset with authorities that he even threatened to chain himself to the Springfield City Hall, and he even went and bought the chains and everything. Finally, on August 24, 2001, six years after the murders, a grand jury indicted Mark on two counts of first-degree murder. He was arrested at his state office. Donna's mother and stepfather still believed in Mark's innocence at this time, and they even attended his trial, hoping that he would be exonerated. Rebecca was completely in the dark about this whole investigation, and she had no idea police were still looking into Mark until the day he was arrested. She said, quote, I had made plans to go to McDonald's Playland. We were there, and I got a call from Mark's secretary, and she told me that Mark had just been arrested. I was just sick, like my whole body just kind of went numb, and I just couldn't believe it. I was shaking so badly, and I just remember feeling so scared, end quote. Rebecca felt like she was really stuck in this hard spot because no one really cared about her and the kids since, to them, it was just like they were a part of Mark, so she felt like she had no option at the time but to stand by him. Mark wrote letters to the family from jail and to the kids, including Bailey, and they would be really excited to hear from him. Bond was set at $10 million, and Mark's attorney tried to have that lowered so that he could have a shot of going back home and working to support his family. His lawyer called him, quote, a rock-solid member of the community, end quote, and pointed out that Mark had cooperated with the police. But also, he killed two people, right. so <laughs> there goes that rock-solid member of the community. Mark was pretty shocked by his arrest at first. He was pale and tense at his arrangement in August, but a couple months later in October, he walked confidently in the courtroom dressed in his black and white stripes. He flashed a big smile to Rebecca before the hearing began, and when it was over, he leaned over a bench to give her a kiss, and he said, quote, I love you. See you tomorrow, end quote. Mark went to trial in May of 2002. The state and the defense both presented a lot of expert testimony in regards to the blood evidence that was found at the scene. Prosecutors told the jury that Mark wanted Donna dead before the shuttle ride, and then Roger just presented an opportunity for Mark to follow through with a chance at getting away with it by framing this innocent man. 
Mark lied to authorities from the beginning, as soon as he dialed 911 and said that he didn't know who the intruder was. Deanne Schultz, who had been having the affair with Mark at the time of Donna's murder, testified for the prosecution. Her testimony spoke to Mark's unhappiness and showed that he was unfaithful to Donna and had even talked about killing her before. Deanne, as we said, was given immunity, but it was, wasn't really that she needed it because she had nothing to do with the crime and there was nothing that linked her to it. She just happened to be a very valuable witness as it related to sh- kind of showing that Mark had a motive. Right. The defense painted Mark as successful and respected in the community, and they talked about how, you know, he's a physicist, he's adopted this little girl, and he's just an all-around really good person. They pointed out that, you know, Roger Harrington didn't have that same background, and he had a more troubled past. The defense claimed that the state had the same evidence back in 95 as they did when they finally charged Mark, and the Polaroid photos couldn't be trusted because it can't be verified that the bodies weren't moved before those pictures were taken. Even though the paramedics on the scene denied moving the bodies prior to the Polaroid photos, um, you know, it is what it is. I guess I can see where they're going with that because there really is no way to prove it. You only have to believe what, you know, people who were there say. Sure. But there's not a lot of good reasons they wouldn't make it up. Exactly. So the defense also tried to call Deanne's testimony into question. They told the jury that she was just a woman scorned. They pointed out that she had been suicidal, that she had received this electroshock therapy, and they said that she was emotionally unstable. Rebecca had similar thoughts. She thought nobody would ever believe Deanne because if Mark truly had done any of that, she felt that Deanne would have come forward right away, which I disagree, but we'll agree to disagree on that. And I think that was Rebecca's thoughts early on, not um, later. Right. A forensic scientist named Terry Labor took the stand for the defense and testified that the blood evidence at the scene did line up with Mark's story. Mark did not get on the stand and testify in his own uh, behalf. After deliberating for 13 hours, the jury finally found Mark guilty of the first-degree murders of both Donna and Roger. He was later sentenced to life in prison. One juror told CBS News, quote, if you're going to kill somebody, you don't bring a pack of cigarettes and something to drink and just hope the murder weapon's going to be there, end quote, which I feel like it could be a quote of something we've said, because we've said before, like, no one shows up to kill somebody and doesn't have a weapon. Another juror said Deanne's mental health struggles didn't make her less reliable. It actually made her more reliable. The jury believed she was sincerely telling the truth. All jurors said that the state's best piece of evidence was the three Polaroid pictures. Roger's mom was relieved by the verdict and told 2020 they knew Roger was innocent all along, but they were happy that it was now finally proven. As for Donna's family, her mom and stepdad were now able to come to terms with the fact that Mark had killed their daughter. Her mom, Sarah, said she'll never be able to understand it. And Rebecca, of course, was completely shocked by the outcome of this trial. She fully believed that Mark would be acquitted and would walk out of court with the family that day. She said when she heard the verdict read, she wanted the floor to open up and swallow her. Mark's parents, who had spent a small fortune to fund this defense, were also shocked at this verdict. They still believe he's innocent and had no reason to hurt his wife. Mark's conviction and sentences were upheld and his appeals have all been unsuccessful. He still claims his innocence to this day and says that he can even explain why the hammer was out in plain view that afternoon. He says it was because he was supposed to hang a hat rack, so Donna put the hammer on the table to remind him to do it. He never did have any explanation, though, for why Roger would write down the time of 4.30 on the note that was found in his car. 
But that's not even where the story ends for us, although we are almost there. In 2005, Mark attempted to organize a murder-for-hire plot to have Deanne Schultz and another childhood friend of his killed because they refused to pay his bail. He told a fellow inmate that he had a 19-page plan for this hit. He was mad at Deanne for testifying against him, and he was mad at the other guy, a guy named Jeffrey, because he was a rich real estate developer who had enough money to bail Mark out, but he just refused. How dare he? Right. So Mark's plan involved having this fellow inmate named Terry arrange for a hitman to kidnap Jeffrey and get a large ransom in exchange for not hurting his family, which would just be a trick because, according to Mark, Jeffrey and his family would be killed anyway. And then the ransom money would be used to pay the hitman for the murders of Jeffrey and Deanne. The plan involved Deanne being kidnapped and forced to record a tape where she was reading a script about recanting her testimony from Mark's trial. Because that's not going to be suspicious. Never. At all. Right? Like, she's kidnapped and now she's like being for like the whole thing is like every doesn't make any sense (laughs) no it's terrible so terry this other inmate really got sick of mark talking about this plan so he ended up going to the police in june of 2005 and agreed to wear a wire around mark and good for terry he's probably like dude shut up like (laughs) that's what it sounds like right he's like i'm so sick of hearing this about you and your stupid multi-page plan to kill somebody So he also provided that 19-page, multi-page plan um, to the police to review. Mark was eventually found guilty of two counts of solicitation for murder and was sentenced to another 35 years. He testified that he never intended for those murders to be carried out. They were just fantasies that he wrote down on several sheets of paper. So, yeah, that <laughs> that's not fanfic. Yeah. That's, that's just not it's it. It's not a book. It's just a fantasy no. that he wrote down. <laughs> So where are they all now? Well, Rebecca was forced to move out of the home that she and Mark purchased to start their family. It ended up being foreclosed on, and she had to file for bankruptcy. As somebody who had been a stay-at-home mom for seven years, she truly had nothing. She eventually filed for divorce, and Bailey remained in her custody, which really isn't surprising since Rebecca had been her mom since she was eight months old and had legally adopted her. So, of course, Bailey would stay with her. Yeah. Um, Rebecca and all four of the kids changed their last names. Bailey told 2020, quote, it was really hard being in school, seeing all the other kids have their dads in that relationship. And now suddenly I couldn't just go to my dad's room or have him pick us up from school or anything like that. She later did reconnect with Donna's family. She told 2020 again, quote, it was so incredible to see that there's this whole big family that loves me and Sarah Jane still has my baby picture on her kitchen counter with all of her other grandkids, even though we've been gone so long. Today, Mark is incarcerated in the Western Illinois Correctional Center in Mount Sterling, and he is not eligible for parole. Good. Yeah. Man, this makes me so sad. It reminds me a little of the Pamela Hupp story that we've covered and, you know, Dateline has done where you have this woman who not only kills somebody, but then sets somebody else up for, you know, the murder. Like the same idea where you just have this person that's not at all even connected to the story and you're willing to put it on them just to help you out to get away with murder. Just, man, so senseless. Well, and the whole concept behind... I want to get away with murder. My plan is to commit two murders. Like what? Like how does that even make any sense when you're considering possible ways to get away with murder? Like to now to have a second murder that you have to worry about? Like that doesn't make any sense. That's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. 
I know. I will say, I wonder if Bart, uh, the shuttle company, ever got in trouble with like Donna's family for being like, why did you give this man your employee's phone number? Yeah. Like That just seems yeah. wild to me. Yeah. Um, and because now you definitely don't. I mean, I feel like, and maybe, I don't know, maybe it was just a really bad, you know, call on the, you know, sure. manager's part with that. And probably he may have regretted it later, you know, like yeah. I put him in contact with this guy. Um, but I feel like you could never see that coming. Right. Exactly. But I do feel like now you can't really just call up somebody's employer and be like, oh, I want to have their phone number because they would definitely tell you no. No way. Yeah. Or even to talk to them, the manager would be like, no, you can talk to me. Right. You know, a good manager at least. But yeah, man, that's, that's really sad and all the way around. But I'm really glad for Roger's family that they at least were able to, you know, know that they knew all along that he wasn't guilty of this, but finally Mark is, you know, serving time for this. And Donna's family, that that whole thing makes me so sad. And I'm glad they've been able to connect with Bailey. Like there's some good updates in that story. Yeah. You know what gets me about this one too, that um, I feel like we don't really see a lot. And I feel like this is part of the thing, part of the story that makes it such a fascinating case for me is that, you know, we do have cases where it's like an affair situation or a spouse, you know, murders the wife or whatever. But in this case, it sounded like they legitimately had a good relationship. And so it's like, I didn't, I, I was very confused. It didn't sound like even towards the end, like they weren't having problems or anything. They weren't having like, right. you know, there was no signs of it. And to the point where everybody's families, including Donna's family at first were like, no, there's absolutely no way that he right. did anything to her because, you know, they were just a, this adorable couple and they just had this, they just adopted this baby. And like, everybody was just completely dismissing the idea that Mark had anything to do with it. And like, to me, that's kind of fascinating because you don't see that a lot. I feel like a lot of times whenever this happens, they will look back and be like, yeah, you know what? There was like some weird things that have been going on and like things leading up to this, but like not in this case, not until Mm -hmm. Deanne came forward years later and said, you know what? Actually, we were having an affair like at the time that she died and like that could have been a motive, but otherwise, you know, there was nothing really there that anybody could have been a red, no, no no red flags that anybody could have seen. So I found that interesting. Yeah, and I I feel bad for Deanne. Obviously, you know that relationship should she shouldn't have been involved in, but um, to have to carry that on and to know that was your best friend and you, yeah. had, you know, betrayed your best friend and then her husband, you know, that's a lot. It's so a lot. It, yeah, it takes a lot for somebody to say that, and I can see why she could have waited years to share that. Like that's just. That that's a lot. To it's carry. traumatic, and then that was the other thing, yeah. you know. And and I know it's really just like really cutthroat in a courtroom, but I thought it was really messed up for the for them to come in and throw her under the bus and be like, you know, she struggled with her mental oh health and has gosh. received treatment and everything, so she's not reliable. And I'm like, this woman has been through like a really traumatic experience, you yeah. know. I'm like, give her a break. Like it's just, I, I hate to see innocent people like you know dragged through the mud in court. Like that's just terrible. Yeah. And I love that the jurors were like, actually, that made it even more believable because she was struggling. So good try turning that on her. Right. Um, yeah, man. So, okay, Melissa, this episode has been pretty long um, and it's raining. So I hear your rain oh, in it's the background. pouring. Yeah. yeah, I'm sorry. No. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what am I going to do? I know. There's really Stop the rain. <laughs> I know. I actually, sometimes I like it because I'm like, if it's not thundering, because then I'm like, oh, we have like a little ambiance in the background we just have like a little white noise going on unless you have to pee and then it's yeah then it's really a problem terrible so we'll just do a quick little last thing before we go this week um we're gonna do some feel good happy news stories that have happened recently uh because we all love a good feel good news story we get plenty of bad news stories all the time so we don't need any more of those 
we're going to do good news stories. Sounds good. All right, Melissa, do you want to kick us off? Sure. Um, so I I like this one. Okay. Well, of course I do. That's why I'm sharing it. I did not do any emotional ones because I started reading them, Mandy, and I like my eyes were tearing up. I was like, I, I'm not capable of doing that kind of story <laughs> today. So here's one. A woman finds $36,000 in free Craigslist sofa that she gets, never considers taking the money for herself. She ends up getting this couch, moves the cushions, $36,000. Oh my gosh. I had this one on my list too. Cause I was going to ask you like, what would you do, Melissa? I really want to know what would you do? Oh, I would absolutely call the people back and give it to them. That would not be my money. Yes. (laughs) It's not like they were like guessing when I was like at like eight years old at discovery zone, I found $20, went to the front, gave it to them. They're like, why are you giving this to us? I'm like, somebody lost it. Like I just, that's how my brain kind of works. Like I would never be able to spend a penny of that money. But okay. But when would you ever stop? This is why I do our taxes. Yeah. When, (laughs) but at what point would you ever just stop and think like, maybe this blessing is meant for me? When I called them back and said, I found $36,000. And they said, you can blessing keep it. Meant for me? <laughs> but you know what's funny? So I guess it's a family member had passed away, had hid, hidden money. And my husband's grandfather, after he died, they ended up finding money all over the house, like stuffed in different places. And that was kind of, I think, just from maybe the time that they grew up, that's kind of like how he would save money, just had it in different places. But to this day, nobody knows if they got it all. So heck, I don't know. This could have been from his family. They could have found the money there. Um, but yeah, I don't think saving money in your couch is a great idea. Um, but to <laughs> me, the bummer was that they, they did give her $2,200 as a reward. Oh, for wow. This they good couldn't deed. even give her like a, a, like a nice round. I, know, I was like, I know I was like, give her $10,000. Like I, to me, I think that's it. I feel like but you, you know what? at least 10%, right? Yeah. 10%, 3,600, <laughs> that would make you happy. Yeah. $1,400 was a number for you. I don't know. <laughs> 2,200 is a really weird one. They're like nickel and, nickel and diming it. And then they're like, oh, we probably have more money. So I'm going to call them stingy. I'm not happy with this story. Never mind. This turned into a bad story. <laughs> Just kidding. But I do think it's sweet. I think it's so nice that the lady called because, yeah, everybody, but $36,000 is a lot of money. Anyone would be happy with that kind of money. But Mandy, what would you do? I already know. I just heard you. I would assume that the blessing was meant for me and I would never <laughs> tell a soul that I found $36,000 in a couch. Like I never, I wouldn't even mention it. I wouldn't even mention it to anyone. I mean, I would tell my husband, maybe. <laughs> maybe. You will never touch our taxes. Ever, ever, ever. <laughs> I'm not a thief. I'm not going to like go, no, I know I'm not you go steal I, I know someone's $36,000. But if that happened to me, 100%, I would keep it and I would never mention it. You would never even mention it. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't even. That and I certainly so wouldn't wild. tell you because you're just going to be judging. I would find the Craigslist attitude or the Craigslist article. And give I them my address. Them, yeah. Or yeah. <laughs> Maybe. No, I understand both sides of it. I just, I just like, like, obviously it wasn't on purpose. They did not give it thinking that. So what's the saying? Don't look a gift horse in the mouth. I never understood that saying. I've never under. Well, don't lift it. Look a gift couch in them i guess (laughs) i get it though i don't fault anybody for wanting to do that okay so i have a feel-good story melissa i know you said you didn't do any heartwarming or crazy like sad terrible uh you know tear jerkers but i did not um abide by that rule so i um saw this one actually a couple different places but apparently there was a three-year-old boy in wisconsin that was rescued from a burning mobile home 
And he had been trapped inside of a back bedroom in this burning mobile home. And um, they were able to actually get him out, which I love rescue stories. And I actually saw two while I was looking up for feel-good stories. Um, That was one of them. And then the other one was about the Coast Guard rescuing seven people off a boat after lightning struck their boat 100 miles off of Florida, which is like my worst nightmare. And they all got rescued and like no one died. That's crazy. Yeah. I like hearing those stories especially because I'm always convinced I'm going to die when I get trapped out on the ocean and it's getting dark like what happened to me recently that I told you about. No wonder you want these good (laughs) stories. I know. I need something to like let me know. survival stories. (laughs) Okay. What else do you have, Melissa? So this one, uh, after dreaming of a luxury hotel from a hospital window, the hotel invites this girl and her family to live there for a couple nights and they can do whatever they want. So this girl is diagnosed um, with uh, proximal femoral focal deficiency and basically her lower spine didn't fully develop. She's for years in and out of the hospital. And in 2018, she almost dies following this op- uh, operation to amputate her lower leg at this hospital. And the whole time she's there, she can see this hotel from the hospital. It's like this very nice, the shard. I, I don't, I think this is, a, yeah, it's in the UK. And she can just look out the window and sees it. And she just was like, thought it was so cool. And oh. for whatever reason, she just became fixated because it's what she sees out the window. And so the family ended up being treated to stay, like have this luxury stay through Make-A-Wish, the UK, free of charge. So they just said she's able to have this like huge suite. They told them to order all the food they wanted to. She can, uh, you know, they have balloons, decorations. Um, They did special meals for her. And then she could see her hospital from there, which gives me chills to like be on the other side of that. I thought that was a sweet one. Aw, I thought that was kind of... It was more emotional than I meant to. My other one was about Instagram. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, I had another one, and this will be my last one. So I can't find the exact article now, but I had read um, that I had read a little bit ago. But it was about, I think, I want to say it was in Wisconsin. I could be wrong. But um, great job, people of Wisconsin, if you were from this community where there was a woman who was going to lose her home and she was it was getting foreclosed on. And the people in the community actually rallied together and funded the money to buy the home for her so she could stay in her home. And I just thought I that was that. the sweetest. Like, I love community stories where people, like, do things like that and cha- literally change somebody's life, you know, for the better. Yeah. Like, that's just amazing when a whole group of – a whole community of people comes together to do something like that. Yeah. I have a theory, and this is very not Melissa, but – it's a nice theory that I do think people want to help. They just don't always know how. So when they're given opportunities, people tend to help. Like you see these fundraisers and stuff and people do want to, but they don't always know how to, or they're not able to. And I understand both sides of that, but um, I love that. That's, that's amazing. That's something she'll remember forever. Yeah. All right. Well, that is it for this week. I think we have gotten rained out, thundered out, all kinds of things this week. So we should probably get out of here, Melissa, before we bore everybody with our rain and thunder and sleepy time hey we barely talked about the weather only that it was raining so there you go we still did it guys all right we'll be back next week same time same place new story have a great week bye thanks so much for listening to the moms and murder podcast make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode you can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.